1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
1: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. Ukraine, Russia, boy, we did not see this coming over the weekend, or at least I didn't. Uh, we need to figure out what's happening over there. So we, we asked to get two of our smarter voices over in that part of the world. Maria Tadeo, European correspondent for Bloomberg News, uh, and Leonid Brzezinski, columnist uh, with Bloomberg Opinion. Maria, thanks so much for, for taking the time. I know you're extremely busy today. I tell you, it I feels like the world knows almost nothing about what did happen over the weekend, what is happening. What's the latest reporting about what's going on in Russia?
3: Uh, yes, and it's, it's very difficult to tell because, well, the Kremlin, on the one hand, has gone radio silent since uh, Saturday morning. That's the last time we saw from Vladimir Putin talk about this uh, situation. It was interesting that at the time, the language uh, that he used, he basically said uh, Prigozhin was carrying out what is treason. At one point, he didn't mention him by name, but he did say it echoed uh, 1917, which obviously is a crucial date of Russian history. Mm -hmm. Today, we have seen uh, the Kremlin, to some extent, trying to take back uh, some of the narrative. We did see Vladimir Putin, but almost uh, in a topic completely unrelated uh, to this, almost uh, suggesting its business as usual. We had also some tape, uh, video footage from the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. I mean, a lot of the tensions with uh, Degoshin and Wagner had stemmed because of his criticism in terms of the way that the Russian MOD was uh, carrying out were operations. So the message would be that sure, was are still uh, in his job and uh, continues to do his job. But again, the question is how do we know if this footage was filmed today? Is this all happening today? And of course uh, we've seen that in the past uh, Russia can be very good at just putting out a message on tape and footage and comments, pictures of things that are not happening in the moment but are already pre-recorded. They just put them out because it suits mm. a narrative. To me the real takeaway, however, is that uh, today you see Russian um, state media suggesting that this idea that there would be amnesty that there would be no charges into Prigozhin or even Wagner that a lot of that had been part of a deal brokered by Alexander Lukashenko remember uh, he's the head of Belarus who the international community doesn't really recognize because they say he rigged the 2020 election but nonetheless remains an ally mm-hmm. a, a transactional ally I would say to Russia uh, again the terms of that deal uh, that was brokered to defuse the situation now are being called into question and there's a lot of questions, too, in terms right. of what is going to happen to Wagner, but also where is Prigozhin? Mm-hmm. And the idea is that he would be on his way to Belarus, but we've had no indication that he's arrived yeah. there.
4: All right. Well, let's bring Leonid into the conversation here. Leonid Bershitsky, thanks for getting on a call with us. Talk to me about what this tells us about Putin's control and specifically his popularity uh, with the Russian people.
5: Um, well, his control uh is uh, not really in in question uh if there's actually a deal with Prigozhin. uh such a deal could not have been engineered without uh putin's consent putin's permission or putin's participation somehow in the like in deciding what should happen uh his uh actual power is in question though because when, um, as the mutiny unfolded, nobody really made a, a serious move to defend Putin uh, and to stop the, the, the mutineers. Uh, a lot of people professed loyalty, but nobody actually did anything to stop them. So it's a, it's a twofold situation in, in terms of, um, you know, whether, uh, whether Putin is still in control or not. He's still able to um, to engineer deals, uh, you know people the, the the bureaucracy, the the government apparatus still obeys him clearly, uh, but nobody will go out of their way to 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 right. defend him against an armed threat.
1: Maria, is there any feeling or consensus building after the the weekend about what this may mean for the actual war on the ground uh, in Ukraine? Does this strengthen at all the Ukrainian position?
3: Well, actually, we just heard from the head of uh, NATO, the Secretary General Stoltenberg, who had what is to me a subtle, maybe not even a subtle dig, but just criticism of the operation in, in Russia and just seeing the chaos that we saw play out over the past 48 hours, this is exactly what happens when you hire mercenaries or people that will fight for money to fight uh, your war and again he said this pointed to weakness in the way that Russia has conducted this operation and uh, this idea that the war would be easy to win is obviously by no means uh, the reality now, we've seen it play out for more than a year and a half uh, anything that is chaos internally for Russia, the Ukrainians would perceive it as good for them. But again, one of the things that I would stress, however, is that For a lot of the European officials, especially the ones that I was on the phone with yesterday, what they say is that you have to be very clear here. Pregosian is not an ally to the West. It's not, again, if there had been a coup or or Putin had been overthrown, that things in Russia would be better. If anything, you could argue there could be more hardliners Mm. that could uh, come in and the situation could become even more destable. And this is a country that still holds uh, nuclear weapons. I think at this point, does it help the Ukrainians Uh, in terms of the symbolic nature of this for them? They say Yes, because again, it goes back to this idea that Vladimir Putin is not invincible, that this myth of the KGB man is a myth to some extent, but will it play out on the battlefield and will they help them Uh, logistically? I think that is very, very early to tell. And again, when I spoke to the Ukrainian prime minister last week, he did say to me look, this is not a Hollywood movie. It's not that things happen and change from one day to another. A counteroffensive counts with many different uh, operations. Will it change something substantially on the battlefield as of today? I think that's overly uh, or an overly stretch. But again, it goes back to this idea, at least uh, for NATO today, of reinforcing this message that whatever happens internally in Russia, for NATO, you have to help Ukraine. That's what Stoltenberg said. and, And at this point, maintain that support.
4: Well, Leonid, on that, I wonder to what extent you feel that Putin's authority had already been undermined based on his performance and, and conduct uh, within the Ukraine invasion.
5: Uh, well, it's it's clear that his authority has been undermined by this uh, by, by having to, to actually make a deal with uh, uh, people who stage an open revolt. Uh, but um, whether that affects the events on the battlefield is another, a different matter. The Russian generals coordinating the, uh, the the Russian resistance to the Ukrainian counteroffensive out of the headquarters in Rostov actually continued as if nothing had happened, even as the Wagner fighters uh, were patrolling the perimeter. Uh, so it's it's not as if some sort of anti-war force uh threaten to overthrow putin the uh, progression is firmly in the pro-war camp even if he questions the motives that led to, to the war being started like whatever happens to putin personally uh whether that ends the war is an open question
1: leonard uh, what do you expect then the the i guess the next thing we will hear from mr putin what do you expect him to do next
5: um, what do I expect putin to do he hasn 't really been doing much uh lately he 's kind of um uh, been weighing in wait on letting the uh, letting the military uh, do their job He uh really has kept out of the action to such a degree that the sort of the ultra nationalist contingent in Russia is questioning. Uh, whether he's still around, or you know, the the, the Kremlin is being run by a double. Mm. So what's he gonna what's he gonna do next? Nothing.
1: Okay. Uh, and Maria, just real quick, quickly, Mr. Prigozhin, do we, what do we know about him? His whereabouts? Um that- we.
5: Sorry.
3: At this point, it's not clear. It's not clear at all. And, and in fact, this morning on the show, we spoke with uh, Svetlana Chikinouskaya, who was the, again, remember, she challenged uh, Alexander Lukashenko in the 2020 election, uh, again, which the international community says was rigged and that Lukashenko rigged in 2020 for himself so that he was a winner. The one thing she said is that, that frankly this should not be a problem for Belarus to deal with that this is an independent sovereign country in theory and they should not be dealing with what she said or quote sucks but of course uh, a lot of the focus will now be on where is he but also what kind of reception and treatment will he get from Lukashenko one of the things that I thought was interesting from Tiganoskaya is that she said he's not really been a mediator he probably just passed on a message for Vladimir Putin and he will treat mm. and do with Prigozhin whatever Putin tells him he needs to do next
1: all right, Maria, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We know you're busy. Uh, Maria Tadeo, European correspondent for Bloomberg News and Leonid Brzezinski. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, spent a lot of time uh, in Moscow. He's done a lot of work with uh, in Ukraine as well. So really an informed uh, couple of voices there. And, and Maddie, I guess, you know, we're like the rest of the world, just kind of waiting to see what kind of news or what kind of information will be disclosed about what really happened over the weekend uh, and what it means for Mr. Putin going forward. So, but again, we had two very, very good voices here, well informed to give us a little bit of perspective here. But again, a lot more needs to be learned here.
6: Success is more than the final destination, it's a path you take one step at a time, it's discipline, it's teamwork. Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
7: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at bloomberglive.com slash greenfestival.
8: You're listening to The team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your Podcasts
1: joining us uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, which means he's live on YouTube as well, because, you know, we, we YouTube stream this thing oh, on, yeah. cross on YouTube. Platform. You can go to, yeah, cross-platform. Thank you. That's a good, like, multimedia <laughs> thing. Yeah, you just have to go to YouTube and search Bloomberg Global News, and you'll, and you'll get that stream. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, again, kind of a market year to date that hasn't, the, the indexes look good. The numbers kind of look good, but if you didn't own a handful of stocks, you're, you're lagging here. How do you think about the first half and, and kind of how the market performed and what do you think about for the second half of the year?
2: Yeah, there's only two precedents where I've seen it, where the cap weighted index was so good from such a few amount of companies and that was in 1999 and that period in 2020 and it never, ever, ever ends well. Uh, you look at the equal-weighted S&P on the year, it's a totally different story. Now people can say, I don't care, I don't own the equal-weighted S&P. So if it's six companies carrying the index and I own the index, I'm fine. But the problem with that, of course, is it's unsustainable. Markets are mean reverting things. This will revert to the mean. You will need more participation to see a broader market movement.
4: So what about what you're looking at next? Uh, I'm stealing this from Abigail Doolittle from earlier in the show. She was saying that markets are going to be moving more on earnings than Fed moves in the next couple of months. Do you agree?
2: I think markets always move off of earnings other than sometimes in a couple of months or weeks or days. Ultimately, this is a Ben Graham 101. Markets move by earnings. And I think that you will get better cash flow growth outside of AI and big tech and that the idea of people anticipating the Fed or trying to gain what the Fed will do the Fed's role in market movements is way too high and it's only a matter of when not if that reverts to more normal weighing of market movement
1: looking at some of your stock picks here I see some financial services so let's start off just kind of how you're viewing financial services I guess that mini little crisis we had in some of the regional banks that didn't scare you away from the sector
2: well, we only like a couple names, and okay. Truist is the big regional we own, but it wasn't because we weren't afraid of what happened. It's because we didn't think what happened affected Truist.
1: And now, Truist is the old, remember?
2: BB&T and BB- SunTrust. And SunTrust, They okay. merged together, and that's a super regional by any definition of the word. It's only a little smaller than some of those kind of yep. cities in Bank of America's, and it's a lot bigger than the Silicon Valleys and First Republic. So it's kind of in this no man's land, but it was being treated as a regional. It's interesting. Remember when they put the deposit together to help out First Republic? Yep. Truist was one of the banks that did that. They put a billion dollars into that. They weren't in need of deposit money. They were giving deposit money. Mm-hmm. So we think Truist was misunderstood in the market has great cash flows to get through this tough period.
4: So I notice in your stock picks, none of them are super AI. Related at all Um, what do you say to clients then who are calling in and saying why are we not getting in on the AI rally
2: so I believe that the way we're invested in AI is the only way people should be invested in it and that's with companies that actually already have incumbent businesses that make a ton of money Mm. Broadcom Cisco and IBM we own all three Broadcom's the most AI adjacent but it's not relying on AI like if something were to happen that moves with AI the whole sentiment changed Nvidia could drop 50% in one day. Mm -hmm. Broadcom is far less reliant on that and yet really does have fundamental exposure. So we like the idea of hedging with cash flow, with a balance sheet, with a real business. And there is an AI component in old line businesses like IBM and Cisco. It's not the most leverage, it's obviously not the most beta, but we think it's a safer way to still be exposed to AI.
1: So, we are coming up on earnings in a couple of weeks. We've we'll got the big banks kicking us off here. I'm looking at the SP 500, the bottoms up numbers like 220 bucks per share EPS. I've heard people, I guess not recently, but they were talking about this thing could be 200
2: bucks, something like that. I mean, do you still see some meaningful earnings risk in this market? I believe that if you're going to have a severe recession, it's inevitable. In fact, it's sort of a tautology. There is no recession if earnings stay at 220. Like by definition, a recession means corporate profits drop. And at 200, that would be about a reasonable expectation. I think the market priced a lot of that expectation in last year. Remember, we were at one point looking forward at what, 250 or so. And so I don't think that it is the most likely scenario to happen. I think there's been a lot of earnings resilience, uh, but the problem is the way the market's set up now it's really dependent on one or two sectors and you could have earnings at an aggregate that hold in there but the uh, impact sector by sector is very different
4: what needs to happen to change that to to change that dynamic of just the narrow rally that we've seen in the S&P.
2: Yeah, it, it, it's inevitable it happened, but it's going to be when the Fed is not our number one story, when everyone yeah. isn't just sitting around uh, waiting on the words of a press conference with j Powell, That'll ultimately be what changes it. And, you know, I don't think it's good for index investors if we go into the next phase 19 or 20 times forward earnings. Mm-hmm. You'd rather be at 16 or 17 forward, and even that's not cheap. Yeah. But to go into the next phase already above average valuation, I think, will be a a difficult place to start at. Uh, We just prefer to be much more selective, and we run a really concentrated portfolio. Mm. Are you... So concentrated portfolio, define what that means for you guys. We have right now 33 stocks. I've never had less than 25. I've never had more than 35, but Mm -hmm. that's not by design. If we had 50 companies that met our criteria, we may own 50, but it's always right around 30. How much cash do you have? Right now we have about 3%. We don't usually like to run more. Clients pay us to get them risk premia, but we have cash right now just from a sale position that we haven't replaced.
4: And how many, how many tech names would you say are in there right now? See, I don't roughly? think that
2: the cool kids would consider these tech names, but <laughs> but Cisco, Broadcom, IBM, those, those, are, the those are our tech that, names. Okay. But if it's not a dividend growing cash flow generative name, which takes out Fang, yeah. it takes out NVIDIA, AI, the big six, seven, even Microsoft, they just quit growing the dividend relative to the valuation they had. So we sold that years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So whether it's new tech or even some of those old tech names, uh, Apple and Microsoft both should be two of the biggest dividend growing names in history
1: that's what I've been saying I mean like Apple and I say this to all the tech investors and they push back on me but I mean they have a yield less than 1% in dividend yield you know they got a gajillion dollars worth of cash so 90 to 100 billion dollars of free cash flow yes I know they buy back stock but a lot of that's just to cover the options that 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 you're issuing why do you think they don't have a three three and a half percent dividend yield
2: Oh, I think it is purely an ego issue in Silicon Valley where they believe, like, the reason people push back with you is tech investors believe that they can invest the money better than we can. And they can to a point, but there's a diminishing return. Yep. That's why dividend growth is so important for shareholders. At some point, the C-suite starts doing dumb things. Now, Apple makes so much money, they got yep. away with it. Mm. My example years ago is they bought Dr. Dre's headphone company for yep. $3 billion. Yep. It wasn't worth $800 million soaking wet. <laughs> now, for a normal company to throw $2, 2500000000 in the cash can, that'd be a problem. For Apple, it didn't matter. But that's the kind of bad deals companies do when they're not returning cash.
1: So give me a name in your portfolio that is a good dividend growth mm-hmm. story that you guys own well, for
2: all. all 33 names in our okay. portfolio are good dividend growing names. But you look at the consumer staples, your Johnson & Johnson's, Procter Gambles, Pepsi's, Clorox, they could bore people to death. They've had the best pricing power of any sector through this mm-hmm. period of time. Their uh, top line sales have either come down or stayed flat and yet profits are up and anywhere from seven to 15%. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of dividend growth embedded in that sector. And then energy, the midstream pipelines, are growing dividends double digits, and they're less levered now than they were when they started. Mm -hmm. So we really like that midstream energy for dividend growth
4: any you, discretionary names in our final couple of seconds together
2: see this is a funny thing is i've only owned what i consider one consumer discretionary name my whole career and it's mcdonald's but i'm not sure i'm not sure it's, it's a really staple, a consumer no? discretionary right? i think right? it's a staple i think you have to own those uh, you have to buy those french fries <laughs> and it's really a real estate company at the end of the day oh, yeah
1: interesting. exactly and i learned that from watching the movie Oh, oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. how I yeah. learned I didn't know yeah. that it made a, t- a ton of sense you're yeah. yeah. not in the hamburger business you're in the real estate yeah, business right. So, alright David thanks so much for joining us David Bonson he's the CIO of the Bonson Group I like the strategy of you know consolidated portfolio yeah. uh, and looking at dividends I mean that's something you can get your head around. Um, Where that takes you, I don't know, but it takes you to some of those big staples as well.
8: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Madison Mills and Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. You can check out the live stream on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search Bloomberg Global News. A uh, little bit of a merger Monday here, Maddie. I mean, not a big deal, but it's in tech, so it kind of got my attention. Uh, it's IBM. Uh, they are buying Aptio for $4.6 billion in an automation push here but just give you some perspective ibm's got a market cap of about 120 billion dollars so not a huge deal but let's get see what it means for our good friends in Armonk, new york if that's even where they still are located anurag rana i know where he is he's in bloomberg chicago office happy camper in chicago he's a tech analyst for bloomberg intelligence he's been covering ibm and this space for a long time uh anurag thanks for joining us here what is ibm buying here yeah,
7: this is a very uh, small company, I think, from a from a logical point of view. IBM made a very big push on hybrid cloud with the acquisition of Red Hat many years ago. This product kind of goes along with it. If you are a company, let's say you're Pepsi and Coca-Cola, you have a very uh, old uh, IT architecture, which is all your products or workloads are on premise and you want to move some of them to the cloud. This product helps you figure out, you know, whether some products are better off you keep it in-house and whether some workloads are better if you. So it's like a cost optimization uh, product. And in this market where every, every company wants to save more cost on technology, uh, this, is, this is, you know, that fits right uh, in with that.
4: And Anurag, we've talked a lot about the challenges of getting any deals done right now. Why is IBM one of the few tech companies that's been able to uh, get a deal done in this environment?
7: Yeah, I mean, we have been writing about this for some time that we think there are only a handful of uh... Uh, public companies who can make some deals and, and you know IBM being such a small compared to um, like the likes of Microsoft or Google or Apple or Facebook I mean this, this is a you know this is the only one that can make a deal right now other than private equity firms I mean they're really having a ball out there with you know cheap funding as well as valuations in the software world going down um, so IBM is one of the few ones that can do it. And, and as Paul mentioned, you know, 4.6 billion dollars is not a whole lot of money. Um, the, the company didn't uh, divulge their financials, but we think the revenue run rate would be somewhere between 400 to 500 million, uh, given that Aptio was public three years ago. So if you extrapolate that, so from that point, it's you know, it's going to be less than 1% of IBM's uh, sales from a contribution point of view. So it's a very small deal, frankly.
1: So I'm looking at the stock of IBM here on Iraq. I see the stocks down about seven and a half percent year to date, so it's clearly not getting the AI love that a lot of other tech names have. Why is that because they're not an AI play or how does a company kind of try to position itself there?
7: Yeah, I'm a bit surprised that they haven't been, uh, you know, they haven't gotten any love where a lot of companies like C3 AI have seen their stock go up, I don't know, 200, 300 percent or so. Um, IBM actually is one of the first ones to come up with AI products with their Watson suite over the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, it really was difficult to commercialize some of those products because of the difficulty in, you know, implementing those in the enterprise or the corporate world. Um, and I'm surprised that they haven't gotten any left. Those products are still there, people are going to use them as they come up with their uh, AI strategy. Um, it also has a good uh, consulting arm, which is required. Um, I think they really need to market themselves a little bit better over the next 12 months uh, with some of the products that they have and, and perhaps uh, you know people will look at uh, as them as another player in the market.
4: Do you think within that marketing, they need to have a certain number of AI word counts, basically? Uh.
7: I think they already, you know, kind of uh, used all of that in the last 10 years with Watson. And since nothing came out of it, people are not, people don't believe that they can do anything Mm -hmm. in that uh, area. And I, and I don't really believe that because they have very good, uh, they they work with almost every uh, major company out there. So if you want to try something new, I mean, you're going to give it a try with their products as well. Um, I I, I think, um, I think there is a lot of Consumer use—that's easy to figure out—and IBM's not a consumer play, frankly, and that's partially the reason why um, you get more visibility from the likes of Microsoft and what it's doing with Bing or Excel uh, and and you know Google and others rather than uh, you know the likes of IBM.
1: So Anurag, you and Mandeep Singh lead our global technology coverage for Bloomberg Intelligence, and of course, one of the biggest issues out there for investors is AI. How are you and the technology team at, at BI? suggesting investors really play this at this stage.
7: See, I think over the next 12 months, it's going to be a lot of wait and watch things. I think the first applications, as I said, would be more on the search side. We're going to really see what Microsoft does with the, you know, getting some search market share over the next 12 months. Um, that's really, I think, the first area that we have to see. Then you have cloud investments going in. Companies are going to uh, do test environments in, um, you know, one of the larger cloud providers, whether that's Microsoft, Amazon, or Google, to come up with new uh, applications. So it's going to be a Progress, But this is this is one place I think over the and then, you know, uh, Mandeep and I have uh, done some work on it. We have published a big report on this topic. We think this is really going to uh, support very strong tech spending over the next decade.
4: What is that tech spending looking like?
7: I think you know if you go back historically, technology spending has you know been somewhere around five to seven percent, with software being the bigger portion of it, with ten to twelve percent. But we think um, you know this thing supports that level of growth, with more spending going towards software and less on the um, you could say services side of it or uh, some of the other areas.
1: So, Anurag, give us a sense here of just kind of overall tech spend out there. I feel like it's you know it's been a Obviously, such a great secular growth story for decades now. Um, Where are we in that now? I mean, I know people are talking about a recession and concerns about that. Where are we in just overall tech spend?
7: So the near term, we have a problem. I mean, we are not seeing that level of spending. We saw some fairly neutral to, I would say, bearish results from Accenture last week, and they are the biggest IT services companies in the world. They are saying their consulting bookings were down, which is the third consecutive quarter. Um, So I would say as it comes to the second half, or even the results we're going to see in July, um, we are not very optimistic that we're going to see some massive positive bump coming out because of all the AI rush that we are seeing. Now, having said that, I think, they will indicate a lot of new product launches and uh, new things happening. And with that in mind, I think, you know, things could change um, in in the latter half of the year with bookings improving. And then, you know, 2024 year could be uh, where we see some rebound.
1: All right, Anurag, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Anurag Rana, uh, he's the uh, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based out in our Chicago office. Just giving us some color here and another little uh, M&A trade here in, in the tech space. IBM... Uh,
8: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What a treat it is to welcome our next guest, Jack Devine. He's the president and the founding partner of Arkin Group. Uh, but we love talking to, to Jack because he is a 32 year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, folks to know call it CIA, not the CIA. It's just CIA. And folks, his resume is way too long to go over. But he was in Europe. He was in Latin America. He was pretty much everywhere and probably places we don't know about and we're not supposed to know about. But uh, he's going to give some good perspective here on what's happening in the world. Jack, it was a crazy weekend this weekend. Um, Can you give us your thoughts here
9: as we try to process what happened in Russia? Well, that's a big question paul yeah uh, i was planning on doing a lot of things this weekend but <laughs> right. right away i couldn't pull myself away um you know back in march of 2022 i put an op-ed in the wall street journal saying that putin's invasion of uh, ukraine ensured his uh, demise okay i didn't say next week that's right, right. <laughs> yeah. this isn't quite what i had in mind but you could see this building that something had to give between the wagner group uh, the military and Putin—it just couldn't go on the way it was. Was I expecting that they were going to march up the highway, the Moscow, and that they'd have a uh, get as far as they could? Uh, a bit of a surprise. I think this is not. This is really important. It has uh, damaged Putin significantly. It's changed the world's perception of him and internally. But this isn't what I had in mind, and that he won't endure. I think it's a bit longer coming. Um, I think that uh, precaution moving back was part of a, their strategy to just get him to stop and head back. And I think it was a good move, however, they sold it. Mm. And so I think precaution's days are gone. Now uh, Putin has the uh, job of trying to patch it up. And this is where I think the troubles begin. I was actually expecting it to begin after the second offensive. But uh, right now I think he's got his hands full regaining the control he needs.
4: What do you think is going on in Ukraine right now? And and do you think that Ukrainian officials are feeling like this is going to be a moment for them to finally come out on top?
9: Well, I think they broke out the champagne. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe they shouldn't <laughs> use it all, save yeah. it for later. But I think it's a very positive development um, because I think it weakens uh, Putin's arguments, uh, both internally and externally, about why he's there. Um I think the battlefield will continue looking the way it has recently. Everyone was expecting the big counteroffensive. I kept saying it's David Goliath. If he's just holding Goliath off, this is really good. Mm-hmm. So, I think expecting too much from the second, from the counteroffensive uh, was not realistic. I think they will make progress, they will continue. This helps them because I think the forces on the ground are going to be demoralized and trying to sort out where they are and why they're shooting you know why are they being shot at mm-hmm. so but it's a tough tough uh, tough haul so yeah. um, I think the bigger picture is the long game and the Ukrainians should be um, upbeat about that part of it
1: so Jack if there is going to be some challenge to Putin and his authority within Russia and maybe the events over the weekend will serve as a catalyst to maybe accelerate that. Where do you think it will actually come from? Will it come from the military? Will it come from other political factions? What are your sources kind of telling you?
9: Well, uh, first of all, um, I didn't think you would see a coup. In other words, the Army, Navy, Air Force yanking him out. I didn't think he'd lose in an election. I didn't think the mass demonstrations in the streets would uh, push him out. I think when he becomes an, a liability to the elites in the establishment. Now mm. we can spend a lot of time defining that, and it's an amorphous group. It's elements within the intelligence services, within, uh, within the security apparatus, within the military, but when, and, and the money people. So I think he's his, uh, his more of a liability today, but he's not enough of a liability for them to act. This is bad news what they're looking at. If you're in the military and you're looking at your armed forces, you're having a bad day and you'd want want this to end. I think there's more sentiment about trying to figure out how to get out of Ukraine. That doesn't mean a deal. I don't see a deal in the cards. So I think if anything happens, and I thought this in March of 2022, it'll be when he fails in the offensive and the, the Ukrainians sort of stabilize where they are and it becomes, a liability and and at that point a conspiracy develops and it's not as I said it might be something like a palace coup mm-hmm. and we will be surprised some morning we wake up that suddenly he's walked to the door or carried to the door that's what I anticipated but it's not an eminent in my view not eminent
4: okay I guess I wonder then it feels like in some ways he's already hit that definition of a liability um, what changes that dynamic then? What is the the thing that he has to mess up, the single biggest thing?
9: So I think Progrosion is now out of the game. That doesn't mean he can't cause a major problem tomorrow morning. But yeah. his ability to remove Putin, and I don't think that was his original objective, or maybe never. But I think um, the real challenge now is Putin is given a bit of a breather and a chance to crack down, solidify his position. So I believe the, the old KGB and the, mm-hmm. the, the are running around doing everything he can to figure out, test everybody. But this is a delicate thing. He doesn't have an iron hand anymore. He may be holding a clay hand and that's what we're gonna find mm-hmm. out. How adept is he at doing this? Because if you start doing it, you may then trigger elements within that elite that I talked about to decide to take action. So I think he's got a very tricky hand to play. I used to say was very good tactically, but not very good strategically. I'm not sure he's good at either anymore, and just right. like we're not so sure if the Russian military is, how good it is. So I'm not optimistic that he's going to be able to handle it over the long run. But I wouldn't count him out of the game uh, now, I, despite what I'm saying. Yep. I think he's insured his demise, but he, it isn't. I don't see it as being an eminent issue. President Xi
1: Jinping of China, I guess, tacitly has been supporting... Russia. Mr. Xi's probably going to be saying, "Oh my, who did I get into bed with? I mean, who's this guy? I mean, he can't even take care of his own country. Where do you think, how do you think China's viewing
9: all this? I think they see uh, Putin as a liability, but not enough of a liability. In other words, there can be a liability It's a question of where is that pressure point? And that burns, burns slower. But the embrace, it's very important that China and Russia from from uh, China's point of view, remain together because together uh, they represent a counterblock to to the democratic nations, right? So even though uh, Russia is a weaker partner, it's an important alliance. So they wanted to to stay, but they haven't embraced it. It's not a bear hug. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's some deep issues between Russians and Chinese historically. Um, but I won't go back into my days on the the, the effort in Afghanistan. It's, yes, exactly. Jack, I mean, one of the things I'm also thinking
1: about is, um, Maddie and I were talking about it. I mean, Putin, he's totally irrelevant to the world's leaders, right? He has no standing with a Biden, a she, uh, the European Union. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't get invited to the
9: G7s or G20s or any of those types of things, does he? He can't come back. Can't come back. It, there's no yep. road back. That's what I was saying before. There's no way. So if own- I'm Russia,
1: I can't have that, can I?
9: And that's at the point where. At what point does that become intolerable? For hmm. what mix of people? And yeah. do they have the? And how hard can he? How hard can he be? Um, So I I think we just have to wait and see how that that plays out. It's interesting that Erdogan called him among the first. Now, remember, they tried to oust Erdogan. right? So if I were guessing, this is Jack's guess, that he gave him a couple tips that when they try and push you out, (laughs) (laughs) these are a couple of things to do. And one of them is get any deal going so they back off and then Mm. you get a breather right? and then make sure you, you, you count noses. Interesting. interesting.
1: All right, Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, you coming here. Jack Devine, he's a president and founding partner of the Arkin Group, joining us live in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. No phoning it in uh, for Jack Devine.
8: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Let's talk venture capital investing. I wonder how uh, the th- how that market is reacting to a market where you've got rising interest rates. We've got potentially a recession on the horizon. Uh, what's that mean for the folks in the VC biz? Zoe Pedden joins us. She's a VC partner at Ananda Impact Ventures. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us here via Zoom. Talk to us about what you guys do at Ananda. How's your, what, what is your angle on uh, venture capital investing?
10: Uh, thanks, Paul. Yes. So Ananda's an impact focused venture capital fund based in Europe. We invest in sustainable solutions to the world's most pressing ecological and social challenges across biodiversity, climate, health, education and employment. So 200 million euros across four impact funds. And we've got an active portfolio of 33 investments.
4: So talk to us about how uh, your portfolio and, and your work day-to-day has changed uh, given the higher interest rates that we're experiencing that Paul mentioned earlier. How is a higher interest rate environment impacting you?
10: So in terms of a higher interest rate environment, the companies, uh, well, the, the advice that you see in media and, and reading in the in the papers is quite conflicting sometimes. And um, many of the companies uh, before the interest rates were were really growing really fast. And I think uh, a lot of the advice that we're giving them now is to look at the areas where they're growing fast. If they're working in different industries to focus on those ones rather than new ones that might be a few years away yet. And then cutting back if there's anything that they can trim, they will trim. And uh, if they can put up those prices, too, if that market is elastic enough to be able to do that, then now's the time to put those prices up. But they're strong, they're fierce, they have faced at the things before, they're all w- used to working in difficult environments. So, yes, um, it's an interesting time, for sure. Hey,
1: Zoe, give us an example of maybe a recent investment you guys made. You know, what attracted you to that investment? What are some of the analysis you did and, and, and why did you actually end up investing?
10: Okay, yes, so this is quite related to, you know, the challenges of how much you ask a a company to cut back because one of the recent investments we did is a company called Nature Metrics. And this is um, the world's leading environmental DNA company. And what I mean by that is they're using, they're measuring biodiversity to be able to help enterprises, very large enterprises become nature positive. So we're talking about all the regulated industries such as extractive marine uh, water utilities as well as non-regulated industries looking at nature and um, a lot of climate finance is starting to look at nature and start to build the bonds and loans around these metrics to be able to offer large industries banks um, special loans based on these metrics so For us to start saying to this company, I think it's time that you need to be watching your finances. This is such a cutting edge area that's in such high demand. Um, So for us, the analysis around it, it's, you know, this is nature is the new carbon. So you've got carbon credits, um, I believe, biodiversity credits are the next thing coming
8: up.
4: So, talk to me about how you measure the impact of these companies uh, over time. Uh, we we talk a lot about you know the obsession and interest in ESG investing and impact-driven investing, but how how do you specifically measure the success of those mm-hmm. initiatives?
10: Well, there's something to really be conscious of here. Um, it's around terminology. There's a lot of confusion in the market around impact and ESG. And I think a great resource that your listeners might be interested in is by Tideline at tideline.com, a New York agency, which outlines a real simple difference between ESG and impact. So first of all, it's it's important to get the terminology correct. Um, And impact is around intention is outcomes focused, whereas ESG is more around inputs and is more risk management focused. So the way we go about it is we will look at a company and start to ask the founders what intent, what their intentions are for their end goal. So look at their theory of change. And this is very outcomes focused. What do they want to change in the world? And then looking over, this could be 10 year horizon, but looking at what is going to happen over the next two to three years, what are those outputs? So maybe two to three KPIs that we can measure um so with nature metrics it might be around the 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 kilometer the hectare spread of the area that they're able to measure on the planet with environmental DNA when they're collecting that and it also might be around the number of um red listed IUCN um endangered species that are able to collect too so we're able to demonstrate the growth and the efficacy um, so the business drivers as well as impact drivers. And we have two to three of those in some of the earlier stage ones and a few more when they get later stage. And uh, is it possible for me to mention about our impact um, carry in the, the in the terms sure. that we have? Because I think that's that's quite exciting actually. So something that really demonstrates, you know, what an impact investor is for maybe someone who calls themselves ESG or a mainstream impact investor is the fact that we have this impact term sheet and we have a carry model. So as you know, VCs always talk about, you know, they have their basic salaries, but there's the carry that they get. So often it's beyond a certain hurdle so two or three or sometimes five times, and then they get 20% of the extra above that is their carry. Now, for Ananda, um, we wrote alongside the European Investment Funds, the, the carry model where it's integrated. So, we do not see right. um, our, our carry as investors unless we've met a certain impact hurdles as well as okay. the financial hurdles. So, okay. that's kind of, the, you get all values aligned with the impact then, and it's not just about the finances.
1: Hey, Zoe, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us here. Uh, talk to us a little bit about impact I- investing and maybe some of the differences with ESG and, and how investors can uh, invest on, in the impact space. Zoe Pedden, VC partner for Ananda Impact Ventures.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.